Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 59 of KindredCast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree. Today, we're featuring entrepreneur Tom Blonfield, co-founder and CEO of the UK app-based digital bank Monzo, in conversation with LionTree Executive-in-Residence and Member of Parliament Ed Vasey. Blomfield, recognized by the European Commission as one of the top five entrepreneurs under 30, previously founded GoCardless, and of course, as an avid coder. Enjoy the conversation. My name is Ed Vasey, and I'm here to interview Tom Blomfield, the co-founder and chief executive of Monzo. Monzo is a UK challenger bank founded less than four years ago in 2015, and it already boasts one and a half million customers. In fact, one in eight new bank accounts in the UK are now opened with Monzo. The bank has an extraordinary relationship with its customers. In fact, it holds the world record for crowdfunding, raising £1 million in just 96 seconds in 2016. In October last year, it achieved unicorn status, reaching a £1 billion pre-money valuation on the back of a Series E round of £85 Tom, good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Monzo is a new, fully regulated challenger bank offering current accounts or checking accounts for a US audience via a smartphone. So we've been around, it's uh, more or less our fourth birthday this week, and we've been offering current accounts for the last 18 months or so, and we have now a million and a half customers here in the UK. I have to say the growth of Monzo has been phenomenal. I was listening to a podcast you did two years ago when you were boasting about having 100,000 customers, <laughs> and now you have a million and a half. And I think I saw a statistic that one in eight of all UK bank accounts are Monzo bank accounts. Perhaps that are newly opened. Yeah, come towards, newly yeah. opened. That's right. I think, so last month we opened about 130,000 new current accounts. If you add that up over the year, it'll be, do the maths, a million and a half or so. And I think, in fact, our growth will be even higher this year. We'll probably add 2 million new current accounts this year. The next fastest growing, I believe, is nationwide at about 800,000. So we are opening more accounts than any other bank in the UK by some considerable margin now. That's absolutely fantastic. I just wanted to talk to you about what the typical customer is Mm. uh, at Monzo, because obviously when you started, the typical customer, I suspect, without being rude to anyone, was a tech geek. In fact, I think you mentioned that your first sort of marketing push inadvertently was an article about Monzo in TechCrunch. Yep. But I imagine it's broadened out a bit. It has a lot, although still some broadening to go. So our first probably 10,000 customers, honestly, were 95% male. Um, and they probably worked in London, probably worked in technology, and 100% iPhone, which again does skew your demographics somewhat. Two or three years later, we are now more or less 50-50 male-female, we're about 30% London, 70% outside. London is our biggest city, but you would only expect probably 15 or maybe 20% of customers if it was distributed evenly. We still skew towards iOS, which tend to be more affluent users. I personally use an Android device. Still very young, though. Uh, something like 80% of our customers are under 40, and probably 55% of those are under 30. 
So very, very young SKU, but it's broadening out. And I think as we add more and more products like savings accounts, investment accounts, perhaps mortgage switching, I think that will broaden out to the to slightly older demographics, but certainly very young for now. Given that not everyone listening to this podcast is going to be working in financial services, one of the things I want to sort of tease out of you is the whole sort of marketing phenomenon of behind Monzo, because I think there's a lot that you've done that actually other people can learn from. So, for example, I mean, I think the Monzo brand is extraordinary in the sense of the loyalty it engenders. So it reminds me a bit of Virgin, that people who use Virgin services felt that they were sort of bought into the brand. So just to give you a couple of examples, when I walked into the office today, I took a photo of your logo in the foyer and put it on Instagram. I thought, you know, I was buying it. It was a very sad thing for a middle-aged man to do, but that's what I did. And then yesterday, in a completely incongruous setting, in the House of Commons tea room, uh, a Conservative member of the House of Lords and me were queuing up to pay, and the Conservative member of the House of Lords, in his 50s, got out his Monzo card. Very good. And I felt an immediate bond Mm. with this chap, even though he's on the extreme right of my party and I'm on the left of my party. And we started talking about Monzo. For those who don't know, the Monzo card is a pink coral colour. And I do find myself when I'm on the metro system or whatever and somebody's getting out their Monzo card to go through the barriers, I think, hey, that's a fellow traveller. Yeah, sort of an affinity. Yeah, so talk us about how the brand has sort of, because you're only four years old, it's embedded itself with people. Yeah, and we actually started out being called Mondo. We had to switch the name because of a, a trademark dispute. So we've probably with only been... what Ford Mondeo or... <laughs> with a heavily NDA'd uh, competitor. <laughs> <laughs> so Mondo was meant to be the world. Yeah, and, and we had Mond- to change it because we got into this disagreement. And it was probably two and a half years ago that we came up with Mondo. We went to our community and asked sort of shared the challenge and asked for help. I think that's a big part of the brand, actually, being both transparent and genuinely community-driven. I think it's a way that we built trust without having the multi-million pound marketing budget or big branches, you know, columns outside, the typical marks of old trusted institutions. We couldn't afford that, frankly. I'm not sure they would work today either. So we built this brand through things like transparency and community, but also sort of visual cues. So the, the hot coral card has been a massive, massive part of our identity. Um, Our head designer, Hugo, came up with that back in the day. And um, we really wanted to stand out, but I think that's become iconic, really. Yeah. It's become very, very powerful. I think more than that, it has been described as cult-like. We'd take the positive aspects and probably distance ourselves from the more negative aspects of that comparison. But I think people really do buy into sort of set of values that we espouse. We publish a lot on diversity inclusion. We support very mainstream stuff now. great, like the Pride events. And we have a lot of stuff to say, I think, in things like gender inclusion and different sort of gender identities. Even broader than that, I would say it's, I think we believe that companies don't just exist to make profit. Clearly, we have to make profit. And to be clear, we don't yet make profit and not an unintentional not-for-profit. But I think companies, if they are only here to make profit, I think can lose their way very, very rapidly. And we see big tech companies who seem to be agnostic almost towards the social impact they have. And that's it's been something we've really wanted to avoid from the very early days. So we genuinely want to try to work with the society in which we operate and to give something back and leave the world slightly better than we found it. I think that's something a lot of our staff and our customers really identify with. But I think as well, people feel they're sort of bought into the future that by signing up to Monzo, it says something about them in terms of 
being adopters of technology. But I mean, it is interesting that it doesn't feel to me like the brand excludes people. So there is clearly, to coin a phrase, it's used a lot in British politics at the moment, a sort of liberal metropolitan elite who sign up to the Monzo brand without a moment's notice. But it also strikes me that middle-aged people and older people, people living in rural areas, wouldn't have a problem with Monzo. It doesn't threaten them in any way. You don't exclude them by talking about issues that might be seen as political or... Yeah, we try to be very inclusive. I think there are risks that we do exclude certain people. So, for example, we use a lot of emoji and that annoys people, (laughs) some people of a certain generation, not everyone by any means, but it sort of the way the kids are talking and that does annoy a small minority. We had to tone that down just very, very slightly. We have had comments that we're discriminating against straight white men because we are so conscious about being representative and diverse and inclusive that some parts of the population, I mean, I am a straight, white, privileged, middle-class man, feel that we're discriminating against people from that background. And again, we don't agree with that point of view. But I'd say you're right. I think we try consciously to have broad appeal, but I don't think you can always appeal to 100% of people. I mean, I think that uh, one of the side effects of people being brought into your brand is that your customers come on the journey with you. And full disclosure, I'm a shareholder in Monzo because I bought shares through your crowdfunding Very good. exercise. And I gather that some of us took part in a record-breaking exercise in the sense that you broke Crowdcube. Oh, gosh. <laughs> your first round, I think you raised a million in 96 seconds. And your mm. second round, you raised 20 million in a couple of hours through yeah, crowdfunding. Yeah, that's right. I think we have now something like 42,000 crowd investors, most of whom will have invested somewhere around 500 to 1,000 pounds, some little lower, some a little higher. Relatively modest amounts of money in terms of big bank investments, at least. But it's been a, an amazing way to engage tens of thousands of people and break a couple of nice records along the way. Hopefully, we'll be broken again in turn by the next generation of companies. But crowdfunding, it was an extension of this community-driven, transparent approach to building a company. We didn't just want to all of the benefits to accrue to a small set of shareholders or professional investors, but actually give normal people the chance to own part of the brand that they believed in, I think. And it's also part of this sort of network effect. I mean, I mentioned earlier that I put your logo on Instagram. I mean, you've talked in the past about how Instagram, in, in some ways, is a sort of inspiration for you in terms of sort of uh, viral and networking and crowdfunding is the same kind of exercise. In some ways, you didn't need to crowdfund. No, you could have got money from straightforward investors, but it became, it feels to me, part of the Monzo story. Absolutely. Crowdfunding, I think, has been amazing, but it's expensive and slow and burdensome, being very, very frank. We could have avoided a lot of sleepless nights, frankly, a lot of criticism (laughs) from the press, if we'd have just taken money from big VCs. They were genuinely queuing up to put money in. And we had to fight quite hard to carve out allocation for our customers to do crowdfunding. And the reaction from the press was just unbelievable. I think we were accused of running one of the worst financial scams since the financial crisis. Like, this is (laughs) unbelievable. If I wanted an easy life, I would not have done crowdfunding. But we believed it was the right thing to do. And hopefully, fingers crossed, it'll be a nice financial return for those who've invested and really been loyal since the start. I think the other thing about your brand that works is that the people working for the company live the brand. So you see some of the, dare I say it, older financial institutions that try and sort of become more modern, if I can put it that way. You know, you can put your own picture on a credit card or Mm. something. It just doesn't work because their brand is 
been around for a while and it says certain things. But also I think it doesn't work because the people inside that organisation are not living the brand. Yep. And you have a huge focus on how you run the company or how your colleagues and you run the company. Yep. And I think for people listening to this podcast, it would be very interesting for them to know, frankly, about leadership. What is your leadership style? I've heard you talk about, for example, you allow failure, you have cross-disciplinary teams, so people launching a new product will include marketing people as well as product people, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, we're far from expert. I mean, I'm 33, I think. I'm relatively still early in my career. I'm figuring this stuff out. There are a lot of companies and leaders I admire, and we try to take the best parts of that and apply it to the Monzo challenges at any point in time. Give us your top three leaders you admire. Gosh, putting me on the spot. <laughs> uh, think about I it. really like Ben Horowitz in particular, the hard thing about hard thing book. Uh, I really, really like Andy Gove, I think is has been great. It was at high output management, I think. We can stop it too. Yeah, well, I have to think People about... People will be furiously taking notes. Enough. You're a part I'm, guru, so anything you say. the next one. Anyway, I'll come, come back to that one. I don't think we've invented any of this stuff. I also don't think we've got it perfectly right. And the interesting thing is Monzo is growing so rapidly that whatever worked six months ago, even if it was perfect six months ago, will be unfit for running the company today. Now, that's sort of interesting. We're also in this very highly regulated environment where certain governance structures even though they're not written in any piece of legislation or regulation, are just sort of expected as best practice. I'll give you an example. Three lines of defense, which is a sort of risk management approach, which is suggested. And if you don't run three lines of defense, frankly, you're going to have a a really tough time with your auditors or the regulators who believe you don't have an appropriate risk management framework. The point I'm trying to make, I guess, is there's a set of industry best practice that's relatively calcified, and is probably appropriate for very large companies that aren't growing very fast. We are a very fast-growing company, and we're also a loss-making company. Both of those things pose risks and challenges, not insurmountable, but certainly ones that we have to pay attention to. We have to both run the company according to principles that we believe in, but keep our regulators and shareholders and auditors happy, which is a sometimes intention. So the way we do that is a set of principles which we've unashamedly stolen from others. The first is that we believe decisions should be made by people who are closest to the problem, and that often means closest to the customer. And what that means is you don't have layers and layers of hierarchy. And I, as CEO, try to make as few decisions as possible. I just don't think I'm best placed to do that. But to enable people who are in these autonomous teams to make the right decision, they need to have access to the right information at the right time. And that's where transparency comes in. If our company finances are hidden away, even from our employees, how is someone on the ground on the front line supposed to know what the right decision is given the context. So we have huge internal transparency. We have a lot of external transparency, but internally you can access to basically anything. Board papers, board agendas. How many people minutes, work at the company? About 700 now. So that's quite a big deal. It is. And there's risks and it sometimes goes wrong. So um, there have been one or two things that have got into the press that shouldn't have got into because I think that transparency was abused, frankly. Mm. And that's something we're paying a lot of attention to now. But transparency internally helps that sort of autonomous decision-making. I think another big thing that we really believe in is being extremely iterative. So not spending two or three years coming up with a strategy and then having a big build phase and then a big bang launch phase. I think more often than not, you'll be wrong. And so rather than do that, we kick off a lot of initiatives and then test them very, very quickly, often from idea to test with 100 customers in, in a week or two. And that is unheard of in banking. 
that's a really conscious approach to risk management, actually, because the blast radius, let's say, if it goes wrong, is 100 customers. And they might end up with a product that doesn't exactly meet their needs. And the downside is they know they're early adopters. They know they're testers. They actually get value out of seeing the product early. The downside, if they suffer any financial detriment, we're compensating 100 people. It's really not PPI, let's take the counterexample, massive launch, massive mis-selling scandal, something like 20 billion pounds in remediation. If you start small and iterate and really stay close to your customers and understand how they're using the product, you can then iterate very quickly. So the first version might not be perfect, but a week or two or two months later, you've actually got something that's really been tested dozens of times before you put it in front of your whole customer base. And that lets us really control our risks very well, I believe. You're exposed to lots and lots of small risks, but the materialization event, the crystallization event, is very, very small. So you avoid catastrophic company-ending risks by taking much more frequent small risks. I believe it's a, a much better way of managing risk in a fast-growth environment. And just to, for the clarity of our listeners, PPI is a financial scandal in the UK, payment protection insurance, where a lot of banks are on the hook for selling this product to people who didn't want it or need it. Also a very good point that we live in a world where the last decade has seen a huge series of banking scandals, which leads both to a lot of regulation, but also I think Monzo being able to say quite fairly, look, if we mess up with a few people, this does not compare on the scale to how established banks have messed up. And it makes some people very nervous, being very frank. It doesn't fit well with traditional risk management. I want to talk about regulation in a minute, but the other thing I think is amazing about Monzo is, for example, your head of marketing started as an intern four years ago, has now been named in the 30 under 30 Forbes 30. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Are there people who've been in this company for six months who've, because they're basically customers, are saying, well, why can't Monzo do this? And then leading it through to be a product. Oh my gosh, yeah. So Tristan, I was corrected. I think I said he was an intern. He actually started as a community manager, um, (laughs) but still, relatively speaking, a junior role. And we had a chief marketing officer at the time. And comes back to the point you made out about big banks and their brands not feeling authentic. Tristan and Hugo, our head of design, and possibly myself, I'd, I'd say, the way Monzo communicates is the way that the three of us communicated and the rest of the company. And so the brand was a very authentic representation of what we think and believe and the way we act, I hope. So Tristan has been phenomenal. He's really come on as a leader and an inspirational voice of Monzo. And now if we've gotten your question. It's just that you clear a pathway for people oh, yes, new in the organisation. It's challenging as you get bigger with 700 people. But I think a successful organisation where, it's a terrible phrase, the flat hierarchy, but where at least anyone with a good idea can somehow get it listened to and the, the opportunity to progress it is, I think, really important for yeah. innovative companies. Absolutely right. So I'll give you an example. We stole unashamedly again from Google's 20% time. Monzo time, you have a day a month, and it's only one out of 20, where you can work on projects that you're interested in. So out of that Monzo time from our vulnerable customers team, which is a group of a very small number, four, five, six people who deal with our most vulnerable customers, they came up with the idea of a gambling block. This idea that we had a small segment of customers who struggled with gambling and spent more than they wanted. And so this idea that they could self-exclude from gambling transactions and that Monzo would just decline those transactions and crucially have a cooling off period of 48 hours if they wanted to opt back in. That came out of one of these frontline teams In Monzo time, it was built in a handful of days. We've now had 60,000 people self-exclude from gambling, and we've seen a 70% reduction in gambling activity amongst that group. 
And that's a phenomenal, phenomenal result. And we've had a lot of really positive press about it. I'm very proud we've done it. But that was a bottoms-up initiative from a team on the ground who was really close to customers who really understood what was going to be effective. I think that's just a vindication of this model. It didn't come top-down from a strategy team or from the CEO. I think these great ideas bubble up from the people who are closest to customers. I think it's phenomenal. But I also think it's really important that an idea like that, they have a route through to get it listened to. But I just want to talk from the sublime to the ridiculous, as it were, from the excitement of a startup and a company that's innovative to the heavy hand of regulation. There's no, there's no other sector, really, that's more regulated apart from perhaps the nuclear power industry mm. than uh, banking, even though, as we've seen over the last 10 years, regulation doesn't necessarily work. There are two sides to this debate. One is, how does a startup like yours navigate a set of regulations that are designed for big heavy companies with huge amounts of capital. And the other side, which is a good thing, I think, is that my impression is the UK and the UK government, a bit of self-promotion here, has been very good at trying to work with startups and innovators in the fintech space, recognising that the UK can take a lead in financial regulation. There's a recognition of the fintech sector and a recognition from regulators that they should work with you at the start and almost design regulation to try and help you innovate. Yeah, I'll steal an analogy from someone who will remain nameless because I can't remember who it was, who talked about banks as a sort of heavy goods vehicle and big, big trucks storming along the motorway and different approaches to regulation. One approach is just to stuff a bunch more people into the cab of that truck to sort of watch the driver, (laughs) you know, and if something goes wrong, you've got a lot of people saying you shouldn't, but the thing's still... (laughs) crashes through the barriers. But a different way is to just make sure the brakes work really, really well. Yeah. So not to cram it full of people, but just to make sure if stuff goes wrong, they can react and, and make sure the brakes are really, really effective. And I think thinking about those two different visions of regulation can sometimes be useful. It is right that financial services regulated. You look at what's happened in cryptocurrency over the last 12 or 24 months, and you, time and time again, people say, this is great, the government's not interfering, and then an exchange goes bankrupt, and they say, I've lost my life savings, where was the government protected? It's just absolutely outrageous. I think it points back to the fact that for normal retail customers, there's a serious role for the government to play in making sure that they're safe, and that you don't get these bad actors who aren't behaving well, frankly. So I think regulation overall is a good thing. I think UK regulators have a difficult job, you take the PRA, the Bank of England, effectively. They supervise, not, not a huge number, it's a hundred or so UK banks and some foreign banks. The FCA, our conduct regulator, oversees something like 60,000 firms now. So they have a much, much tougher job. But they're supervising different things. And I think they both have a competition mandate somewhere in their objectives. For the PRA, it's a secondary objective. I think for the, the FCA, it is a primary objective, I believe. I need to go and double check. So helping new firms become authorised and grow and succeed is part of the remit of both. And they've both established, so in the PRA, you have the new startup unit that there's actually a guidebook. So you want to start a bank, you can page by page, it will tell you how to go through your authorization process. Because um, you said getting a banking license was the most painful and difficult experience of your life. And that still is true. But that's possibly right. It, should it be too easy to start a bank? I guess not. Does it need to be that hard? Maybe not. The problem really that we faced early on is the regulators demanded a level of certainty that was impossible to provide. How will you get customers? Well, we'll develop a great brand and sort of prove it. Some of these things you can't prove in advance. So I think the response is to make sure you've got the right breaks. If it goes wrong, do you have enough capital to wind up? If so, we'll let you try your new model to see if it works or not. 
the Bank of England have said multiple times they're not a zero failure regulator. I think you do need to take some amount of risk in order to see new models through which are better for consumers. So I think they are both trying very hard to make sure there's enough space for new entrants to succeed, whilst also making sure customers are safe on the FCA side and making sure that the financial system systemically is protected on the PRA side. But is there UK regulation that you think has made a difference to you in the sense that if you had started Monzo 10 years ago in that regulatory climate as opposed to starting it four years ago? Oh, for sure. The banking license reforms of 2013, I believe. You saw 16 or 17 new banks in 14, 15, 16, 17. Metro Bank was before that and had an incredibly tough time. I think they were the first new retail bank in 100 years. And since then, we've had 16 or 17. So clearly, the regulatory changes have worked. They are pan-European. There are banks started in Germany and France and Lithuania and, and whatnot. So I think it's Unfair to say it's only the UK. I think the UK is seen around the world as leading financial regulation. The US certainly is behind. I think they're just waking up to this fact. Senior levels of the regulators, it's extremely supportive and open-minded, I would say. And at government, incredibly supportive. Both um, Number 10 and the Treasury really do see this as as a positive thing. So you mentioned the US and it being backward in regulation. Your next move is to go into the US. No comment on that one. Um, I can certainly talk about the, U- the US. Lots of people expect you to. I think you're sure. on the record as saying you're looking at launching in a similar way to how you launched in the UK and the US with a charge card. Uh, I think there was a TechCrunch article that did not include official <laughs> comment from also. <laughs> certainly it's on the roadmap. At some point in the future, I can't be more specific than that. Everyone is speculating what's Monzo's next moves. You have been asked about IPOs and about acquisition either being acquired and not being acquired. And you've talked about an IPO and been very frank about the timescale and how that's been interpreted. You've talked about not wanting to be acquired, but to build a very big company. Yeah, for sure. And that still stands. So we are not here to be bought by a big bank or even a big tech company. We will at some stage IPO. It's not a priority, frankly. It's not the end goal even. It's a milestone that any maturing company typically goes through. I don't think we can stay private forever. To be really frank, right now, the private capital markets are much more amenable to loss-making high-growth companies that have a really strong future vision. I think public companies get really beaten up. I've seen other companies go public in the last 12 months. You've got Farfetch or Funding Circle, Adyen, and it's been a mixed bag there. Especially in Europe, I think public market investors are much, much shorter term, very skeptical of these high-growth technology stories. I think the US is slightly more amenable, but it's not on the cards for the near future. I think we will wait till we are well profitable before we think about that. I think one of the exciting things again about Monzo is you're still sort of in the foothills of financial services. I mean, you're a current account, you've just launched loans, you're testing out business accounts. Mm. But we were talking earlier about people coming up with product ideas. I mean, savings, you do savings in pots, but you can do insurance, you can do mortgages, you're looking at loyalty cards for retailers. Yeah, it really feels like we spent the last three or four years getting to base camp, getting all of the foundational things in place, banking license technology, the current account, getting a million and a half customers. And even when the current account was launched, it wasn't finished yet. A lot of customers said it was missing key functionality. And we spent a lot of last year getting that key functionality in place. But we didn't set out to build a sort of shiny current account for millennials. We started this company because we wanted a single place, a single platform or control center 
that helped normal person visualize all of their money wherever it sat and then just made it work. So as a consumer in the Western world, we probably have a dozen, 15 different services that are, touch our money, whether that's a mobile phone or home broadband, car insurance, home insurance, travel insurance, uh, a pension, a student loan, a savings account, investment accounts, mortgages, student loans, on and on and on, right? You've got all of these different things that you have to keep track of. And to know that you're not getting screwed, you have to every year go and do this painful administration. No one loves doing that. So we have these really predatory pricing mechanics in the UK where you will get a really attractive, often even loss-leading deal for the first 12 months. But if you don't switch providers after 12 months, you'll be flipped onto a really crappy tariff. And so the savvy consumer will switch, but the vast majority of us don't do that and get ripped off as a result. And so what we really want Monzo to be is the single interface to all of your money that keeps track of it all and makes sure you're not getting screwed. Imagine a big company actually looking out for your customers' interests and fighting back against these predatory pricing mechanics. That's what I'm really excited about building. And I think you can do it in a lot of the things you mentioned, mortgages, insurance. And I think a lot of those things will come to Monzo really very soon to enable us to be the hub and then plug in the spokes. We're not looking at doing Monzo mortgages on our balance sheet, but instead being the customer interface and helping the customers make sure they're getting a great deal. You know, I was talking to somebody else about this the other week. I mean, that is also part of the sort of Monzo story and the Challenger Bank story is that we give these financial products names and we put them in silos. This is my mortgage. This is my pension. Yeah. You talk about pots when you save money. I mean, it may sound a bit superficial, this, but I don't think it is. You're going to sort of redefine the language of finance because I will have a pot of money Mm. and it will do lots of different things for me. It will (laughs) pay my bills this week. Some of it will go off and tuck itself away so it pays my bills when I'm retired. Some of it is going to pay for my house. Yep. And you're quite right. I spend my life, you know, checking if I got the best deal here, getting letters from provider there. The way you use money could potentially change when you have your money in your phone. I really believe that is true. Just a fun anecdote about POTS in particular. We've introduced POTS. I think they are a great abstraction. People sort of identify with them. But it got to a point last year where any new product idea was going to be a kind of POT. And this is sort of backlash against <laughs> everything is a POT. It becomes a little bit meaningless at some Stop point in time. <laughs> yeah, but I think the underlying thought there is true, and it's what we're trying to achieve. With big banks, the center of gravity is a financial product. Pause and think about that for a second. The mortgage is the thing that everyone thinks about. Exactly. Everything rotates and revolves, orbits around the mortgage. The customer orbits around the mortgage. The customer is a temporary annoyance before you can get the mortgage on your book and start making some money out of it. The banks think about their financial products. Imagine a different worldview where the customer was the center of gravity and everything had to shape itself around the customer to make it easy for the customer. That would just intuitively feels a more natural way to think about your money. But for big banks, that's an incredible mindset shift. Talking about your customers. So one other aspect of Monzo that people don't talk enough about, I think, is you're getting a lot of data. Mm, That's right. And what are you going to do with it? You know, Monzo sends me a monthly report on what I spend my money on. And they send me an annual report. And I look forward to it. I suddenly get a picture of myself that I didn't know. But there are a million and a half annual reports and monthly reports that you get to see. First of all, Obviously, this is your opportunity to tell us some funny stuff about what people spend their money on. I mean, can you tell us, for example, we're recording this just for reference the day after Valentine's Day. So maybe you already have the data straight off about how many 
bunches of roses were bought by Monzo customers yesterday, but any other funny anecdotes that'll make us laugh, but also the wider point, because it potentially it's another revenue stream for you, because, you know, if everyone's shopping or going out to dinner at a certain fast food restaurant, you can go and talk to that fast food restaurant and say, you know, 30% of our customers use your services. Let's have a conversation. Yeah, and I think there's also a big risk there. One of our competitors did a ad campaign which focused on Valentine's Day, I think, single people buying takeaway meals or something. And there's oh, a pretty yes. big backlash about it, it actually. Was. I mean, first of all, a lot of people said, I don't want you mining my data for that yes, kind of exactly. stuff. And then they said, oh, no, 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 it's not real data. And then the second backlash <laughs> was, well, you're faking your data. <laughs> I think the, the serious point there is that there is a growing awareness and growing fear and mistrust amongst consumers about how big companies are using their data. Absolutely. I think it's really important we face up to that and understand that it, it's a really emotive issue. And so our stance is very clear. It's as your bank, you trust us to look after your money, but also to look after your data. Would lose that trust if we misused your data, sold it to a hedge fund or whatever. You have to trust us to keep it safe and secure and not to share it without your permission. And that's really, really crucial. Having said that, there is opportunity, however, for customers to really benefit when they know how their data is being shared, what it's being used for, and who it's being shared with. For example, we can see that you are a British gas customer and you've been a loyal customer now for 16 or 17 months and you got a great rate for 12 of those months and then you got flipped onto a crappy tariff. We can go and share, with your permission, explicit opt-in, your energy expenditure with another supplier to tell you how much you'd save and then make the switching process really, really easy. So we have to present that option to the customer and give them the benefits and let them opt-in or opt-out. Treading that line and understanding where we can deliver value to users that, that they appreciate and benefit from versus when it feels creepy, when it feels like an ad platform, like we're spamming our customers. We have to really tread that line very carefully. And the tricky thing is, for different people, it's in different places, that line. Some people are just like, I don't want my bank to do any of this stuff, just keep my money safe and don't touch anything. Other people are like, great, you're saving me 300 quid, brilliant. Switch me over to whoever's the cheapest this month. So being a little bit more nuanced and granular. And you could get customers who, as it were, subscribe to that as a service. So I could just flick a switch on my Monzo app and it will say, whenever you see a cheaper deal, switch me. Don't Auto even tell me. me. Absolutely. Or with any retailer out there, I'd love to just opt into whatever cashback or loyalty scheme they have going because I want the money. Exactly. And in return, that retailer will get aggregated, anonymized data about how I spend and where. But some people will think that's the worst thing in the world and they don't want anything to do with it. So respecting both positions, I think, is crucial. But you're not breaking your confidence if you tell me what the most bought thing is by Monzo customers. <laughs> it won't surprise you. It's going to be Tesco or Sainsbury's. I think yeah. everyone got that year in Monzo. It's like, oh, I shopped at Pret. And you looked at the ne next person and like, oh, you, you shopped at Pret too. Yes. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> Actually, there's a sort of collision here between the regulation that you've talked about, the customer data and serving customers as well. Is I don't think people appreciate enough in public policy, which is one of my, obviously, main interests, what you and companies like you are doing for people's incomes. You know, we've gone through a tough decade of wages stagnating. Mm. You're at the forefront, I hope this doesn't sound too bizarre to say it, of allowing people to make more from their income. As these banks like you become more established, and, you know, for example, making switching utility providers becomes much easier you'll end up potentially on average saving people who may be earning 30,000, 25,000 a year yep. up to 500, 1,000 pounds a year, which is of after-tax income. That's hugely significant to people's real incomes in this country. 
Yeah, I believe so. I think we definitely have the opportunity and we're not doing a lot of it yet, but I, I think it is a huge opportunity. I think making all of these industries more efficient delivers value back to normal people, which I think is phenomenal. But also value back to the economy because yeah. people have more disposable income. If they're saving money, they wouldn't otherwise have saved. Yeah, absolutely. I think one really interesting thing that banks don't think about very much because it's not a financial product is the behavioural economics aspect of budgeting, for example. Yeah. The way people think about money is not rational. And it's predictably irrational, in fact, to crib from the book. So, for example, I think your short-term self and your long-term self, your interest in the short-term and the long-term, are very, very different. So, start of the year, everyone says, I want to go to the gym more. Really, and genuinely does want to go to the gym or might go and get a gym membership or a personal trainer. But at 7 a.m. in the morning, do you really want to get out of bed and go to the gym? Well, no, maybe not. And so, allowing your long-term self to lock in decisions that curtail the freedom of your short-term self actually is really, really good for many people, if it's their choice. So I don't think this should be something that the state or a bank imposes on people, but take the gambling block. That's a perfect example. Someone says, I want to gamble less. I realize I've got a problem. So I'm going to limit my short-term self in a late at night or after a few drinks, whenever it is, from making that decision. Because I know in the long term, I don't want to gamble. So I'll self-exclude and I'll put a cooling off period to stop myself impulsively doing that. But there's also the concept of rounding up. So I pay... Five seventy nine for a product, and then you round up to six pounds, and that extra money goes into savings. Yep, absolutely. And economically, that is irrational because our average customer makes about thirty transactions a month, and the average round up would be fifty p, and so that's fifteen pounds a month. So I could just take fifteen pounds a month out of your salary; you'd get the same thing. Mm. But that feels like a loss. If it's small increments that you don't notice, it feels like you've got fifteen pounds of free money. Yeah, it feels like a gain, doesn't it? It feels yeah, like I've made fifteen pounds this month, which is crazy. Another is locking savings away from yourself. So everything's a pot. Putting money into a pot, it's too easy to get out. So allowing people to lock that pot for a period of time stops them spending it, even without an interest rate. An economist would say it's actually negative utility there. You're preventing yourself spending it. That's a cost to you. For most people, that's a benefit because they stop their short-term self stealing off their long-term self. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's amazing. Just a bit about you. Mm. Should I talk about the least pot? interesting part of the Should interview? Should I talk about your pots? So one, one of the things I can never get my head around when I meet people like you <laughs> is what is inside your head that I suppose it weirdly gives you the confidence. I mean, I could not have imagined my own self now, but even my 28-year-old self doing a quick rough calculation, sitting down and said, I know, I'm going to start a bank. You've obviously been on, in some senses, a journey of, you know, I know that you... Uh, built an estate agent's website when you were a teenager. You were part of the founding team of Go Cardless. You've worked on a dating app. You've taken a company to Y Combinator. But what is it about the entrepreneurial mindset that allows someone like you? I could understand if you were sitting here saying you had started, um, I don't know, a coffee delivery company (laughs) on an app. But starting a bank is quite a big thing. Yeah. Where does this confidence come from? And where does this foresight to say... I've got this vision and I think I can realise it and execute it. Because it's not just the vision, it's the execution. You stayed the course. You haven't been ousted by coming in from afar, chief executive. You're still in charge. It's hard to answer. From a very early age, I knew I wanted to run business. I didn't necessarily know I wanted to start them. Why did you know? My father, I think, started his own company and it seemed really interesting, the breadth of challenges. I also really believed that I was on this earth to do something exceptional. But I thought everyone was. I thought that was a feeling every single person had. I didn't think I was unique in any way. I think everyone, when they're 
Jung thinks that way, and I don't know if that's true or not. But some people dream about being an astronaut or a surgeon or a footballer or whatever it is. And I, when I was very young, thought about being a business person, an entrepreneur, running a company. And I... What is very young in this context? Oh, like five years old. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. I ran market stalls outside my parents' house. I was going to ask whether we had the traditional selling lemonade outside. <laughs> my favourite computer story. game was called Lemonade Stand. It was on the Mac 2, I think, back in like 1989 or 1990. I made millions on Lemonade Stand, virtually speaking, and ran like pretty crappy stalls outside my house. I don't think I ever sold anything. I sort of pilfer things off my parents to sell on my stall. I grew up in Singapore and it was a very quiet street and no one ever bought anything. But yeah, from a very, very young age, I sort of wanted to do that. And starting Go Cardless was a little accidental, really. I was trying to get out of management consulting, really. Honestly, that was the biggest problem I was trying to solve. I wanted to start a dating website. My co-founders convinced me that was a terrible idea, and we started Go Cardless. And that was an introduction to financial services. I didn't expect to be in... FinTech wasn't even a word back then, but we didn't expect really to be in financial services. But it taught me how money moved around. And even in the Go Cardless days, we talked a lot about starting a bank. I think we had a really clear idea of what it would be at scale, the problem we would try to solve, this sort of hub-and-spoke thing. But what we could never figure out analytically or intellectually was how to acquire customers. Like, why would anyone switch? And in a sense, it's back to that organic brand thing that's intellectually very hard to rationalize because it's an emotional thing. Really, I think I was overly analytical, law degree programmer, whatever. And it was only going to Grouper, the dating startup that I joined for a year after GoCardas, really taught me about brand and behavioral psychology and emotion and how it all plays together into creating an amazing customer-facing service. And so I think reductively, Monzo is a combination of GoCardas, how money moves around, and Grouper, how human beings think and feel and behave. It's been a really interesting journey. I think everyone can look back on their past and rationalise how each individual step kind of culminated in where they are now. It's probably entirely false. We weave these stories in our heads, I think. But it's interesting in a world of MBAs that you fundamentally a successful company is still, to a certain extent, built on instinct, gut, passion. And a good amount of analysis. I mean, the data behind a lot of this stuff is... We launch a feature because we think there's a customer need and because it ties to their brand, but we will test the hell out of it. And we will know at a very, very granular level of detail how it's contributing to profit and loss. So I think the real beauty comes in tying together design thinking and emotion and brand and marketing with deep data analysis. And if you can get both, then I think you have something very, very powerful. One of the reasons I obviously wanted to interview you is because Monzo is now a unicorn. Mm. And so you're part of a select breed of UK companies. This is coming from London who have reached this status. But the UK does have a thriving tech scene. I just wondered whether you could give us a view on, you know, you've obviously been part of it for the last five, even 10 years. Yep. Who do you hang out with? <laughs> who, who are your fellow tech entrepreneurs? I mean, do you cross-pollinate? Do you sit down with people doing Zoopla or others and discuss common challenges Less than you think. Honestly, I hang out with people I was at school with when I was 12 and 13. My closest group of friends I've known since then. And it's great because I don't have to think about tech startups every second of the day. It's like an escape, which is wonderful. The London technology... Because we talked earlier about cults. I mean, the tech startup scene is a bit of a cult. Yeah, it is. It's got very, very popular. And 10 years ago, that was not like that. I started my first company out of university and we couldn't raise funding in London. Now, people with great ideas and early prototypes are raising multi-million pound 
early A rounds. I think it's great for the scene, but it's very different. But the founder network is small and pretty close here. So we see the TransferWise guys quite a lot. I really like Habito and what they're doing, and Trussell, the two digital mortgage brokers. When I was a management consultant, if you take my peer group and so sort of the year who started a year before us and the two years before us, probably 40 people. Out of that cohort, there are now at least a dozen technology companies. It's absolutely unbelievable. Funding circle, James Meekings was at OCNC, Sport Pursuit. There's Unmortgage now. All coming out of that management consultant. 40 people. That is amazing. 40. And actually, if you look at the McKinsey cohort at the same time, there are another set of great companies. Entrepreneur First came out of McKinsey about that time. There was something about financial crisis, 2007, 2008. The younger generations who were, especially in consulting at that time, I think saw the world, a bunch of lost their jobs, and it's created this wave of technology companies. Again, that actually might be entirely wrong, and it's just sort of, it takes about five or ten years for an idea to mature, and in the next five years we'll see a, a new group of people coming through. But um, there does seem something special about that sort of 2007, 8, 9 cohort of recent grads, I'd say. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think there's a whole um, bunch of people, and I think the whole, weirdly, you know, the first tech bubble, the, the, the early 2000s, I think also still inculcated a culture of people saying, you know, I can start things myself. I mean, I think people do it in their 20s and 30s. And if they haven't done it by then, they probably move into a more conventional career path. But people are much more willing, even than my generation, to take risks and start companies. And also partly because you're disrupting, you know, what Monzo is doing. And the reason for its success is you've created the product you wanted that no bank was going to give you. Mm. I think that's right. And the cost of starting companies exactly. has come way, way down, which is, I think is a, a real enabler. I, I actually think people don't take enough risk in general. I'll caveat that. I think we are in a really privileged position. We live in a country with a great social safety net. Personally, I'm very privileged. I went to a great university. I have a family that can support me. I have a lot of peers like that. And with that safety net, I think with that in mind, people do not take enough risk and instead join magic circle law firms or, or investment banks. And I think taking more risk can... Just a slightly random question prompted by that, and I hope it doesn't sound too controversial, but you know, one of the big debates in tech is that 1% of investment funds go to women founders. Yep. I was going to say, ironically, it's, it's the wrong word, but you're backed by Eileen Burbage at Passion Capital. She's one of the most foremost women in tech in the yep. UK. But and is there, Sonali at Axel. Exactly. Came in the last round. What is the issue? Why are there not more women founders being backed? And in terms of diversity as well, in general, in the whole tech scene, I mean, we would both describe ourselves as white middle class, and that is broadly speaking the tech scene here, and I suspect in the US. The US is interesting. It's still very male, but it's very heavily immigrant driven. Right. Famously, a lot of IIT grads, so Indian tech entrepreneurs coming, so tech people coming to the US and starting companies. Sundar, I think, Google is one of them. I think it's a huge problem. Part of it is because a lot of the investment companies, the VCs, are run by men. When someone who's not a man turns up and says, hey, I've got this huge untapped market for whatever, a man looks at it and says, I don't identify with that. I don't see that being a big market, so it doesn't invest. The flip side to that is they should be seeking out the underpriced assets, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And as a female entrepreneur, you should be an underpriced asset. If there's financial return to be had, capital should be flowing to it. I hate that that is a, a potential suggestion, that just the gender balance means people sort of take different kinds of risks. I'm not sure that's true. I think there's certainly something about where the burden of childcare lies. 
there's a sort of societal expectation that women bear the majority of that burden. We have a huge issue hiring, especially senior women. We've had a couple of amazing candidates recently, very, very capable women, have turned down job offers here because of caring obligations, either to children or to elderly parents. And we've never had a man do that. Mm. That's a societal issue, I think, that the Nordics, I think, have gone further towards solving that than we have. But making childcare and child rearing more equally distributed, I think, could really help. Just to round off, thank you so much for your time. I just want you to tell me, you've kept your cards very close to your chest about the obvious move into the US and the obvious <laughs> IPO. I'm teasing. But without giving anything away, what's your vision for Monzo in the next two, three years? If you and I were to do this in three or four years' mm. time, so would I be coming to you and saying, well, I'm so pleased with my mortgage Monzo and I love the fact I'm one of 10 million Brits with a Monzo account? And Getting to 10 million accounts in the UK, I don't think is a stretch now, actually. I think that's very achievable in the next few years. On the front page of our investment pitch deck to investors in Series A, Series B, Series C, really for the first few years, it said, Monzo's building a powerful financial control centre for a billion people around the world. I think that is as true today as it was then. This idea of the hub and spoke model, the control centre for your money, is absolutely what we're trying to build, and I think it scales around the world. Clearly, to achieve that, we're going to have a lot more children in the UK or expand internationally, so um, one or the other will happen. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.